Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Father, we're thankful for your word that it has, it is completely accurate, that it comes from the pen of the prophets and the apostles without error, and that as we study it under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, he uses the truths that are there to challenge our thinking, to help us to understand uh, creation as you have made it, and to understand who we are as creatures created from your hand in your image, that we have a mission as human beings, that we have a responsibility toward you in terms of our spiritual life, and our obedience, and that as believers, that we have a responsibility to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we study uh, the passages we look at this morning, we reflect upon what you have revealed in your word. We pray that you would help us to see these truths for what they are, and that God the Holy Spirit would apply them to our thinking, that we may continue to grow that God the Holy Spirit would continue to shape us into the character, the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to First Corinthians I mean First Kings chapter eighteen. First Kings chapter eighteen, we continue our study of Elijah during the last several uh last several months, or not months, but weeks, we have had some uh a little diversion and a couple of different things, but we're back in first, uh, chapter 18 right now. For the last five or six weeks, we looked at a topic that's very important. That's the topic of authority. It is the topic of the believer's responsibility to the authorities that God has established and set up over us. And the responsibility that each of us has as believers to the authorities over us, whether it is the authority of parents over children, the authority of husband over wife, the authority of employer over employee, the authority of a uh, commanding officer over subordinates, the authority of teacher over students, the authority of government over those governed, the authority of a president, king, uh, whatever, over uh, the citizens of the nation. It all comes back to a basic fundamental principle of authority that is embedded, as we've seen, within the Godhead itself, within the very structure of the Trinity, there is a an order. 
There is a chain of command, one might say. There are specific responsibilities and specific uh, authorities within that Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are equal in their person. They each partake of the same essence so that there's, there's no qualitative difference between them. The Father is not a little bit smarter than the Son or the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not a little bit more compassionate than the Son or the Father. Uh, they are equal in every area of their being. So they are identical in essence. But yet there is a an authority structure that is related to their role toward creatures, toward creation, that is embedded there so that the Father is the ultimate authority in creation. He's the planner. It is God, the Holy Spirit, who often works to carry out specific uh specific roles toward creation, such as in, in the creation of the earth, Genesis 1-2, in the revelation of God's word uh, through the prophets and the apostles and in the sanctifying work in the believer in the church age. And it is the role and responsibility of God the Son to carry out the redemptive plan of God, which he did ultimately at the, at the cross. And it is in the role of the second person of the Trinity, who entered into human history by means of the virgin conception and birth so that he is he took upon himself true humanity he doesn't he's not diminished any in his deity but he adds to that true humanity so that his role is that he will forever be uh, united in that god man uh, relationship, which we refer to as the hypostatic union, and ultimately he will return and establish his kingdom upon the earth. So that within the Godhead itself, we come to understand this this whole issue of, of authority, and that becomes so important. It is central to understanding all of human history, because behind human history, we have studied the angelic conflict or the satanic rebellion that at some time in eternity past, the highest of all of God's creatures, the most beautiful, the most intelligent, uh, the most capable, the most honored, really, of all of his creatures was this creature we call Lucifer. Uh, actually, in the Hebrew, his name is Halel ben Shahar, the bright and morning star, the son of the morning uh, as a title that's applied to him. Uh, later, that term is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is very interesting to see that, that replacement ministry that goes on there. We're not sure all of the aspects of that. But we see that that rebellion of Satan against God is at the heart of the whole sin problem. And it caused a fall among the angels. Satan led uh, about a third of the angels to go along with him in that rebellion. And then there was a trial of some type in eternity past where God establishes the guilt, his guilt of Satan, the guilt of these fallen angels, and apparently uh, some sort of challenge to that decision, which is why there is human history, because we are, as it were, a, an exhibit in this trial to demonstrate the significance of personal responsibility toward God, submission to his authority, and what happens when the, the creature disobeys the creator and begins to act as a God unto himself and begins to act independently of God. And we might think that, well, there are a number of different things a creature could do that are not so serious, not so significant. 
Uh, but what God is showing is that even in an act as, as seemingly innocuous as eating a piece of fruit, that because that is done in rebellion against God, that, that that act of disobedience alone has such ramifications and such repercussions throughout not only the spiritual realm but also the physical realm that it, it, is the, it is that simple act of disobedience to God that is the root of all suffering, the root of all wars, the root of all famines, the root of all problems, disease, heartache, everything goes back to that act, therefore showing that this simple act of rebellion that uh, came from the uh, volition of Satan is responsible for all of this horror that we see throughout all of creation, all of the curse that comes from sin. Therefore, a punishment of spending eternity in the lake of fire is a just punishment. Now, that sort of ties it all together, but when it comes down to where you and I live, we have this basic challenge of authority for us, and it is the authority of God. How well do you respond to the authority of God and to the authorities that he has set up? Now, as we get into our chapter in 1 Kings 18, there are two questions that are going to be raised related to authority. One is an explicit question in the text. As Elijah comes to the point where he is going to challenge uh, Ahab and challenge the false religion of Baal, the false religion of the Asherah that's been brought in by uh, Jezebel and that Ahab has willingly allowed to dominate uh, the northern kingdom. Uh, Elijah is going to challenge the people, how long are you going to sort of totter or teeter back and forth between two opinions? How long are you going to try to blend the two, doing it your way, doing it doing it God's way? How long are you going to be in a position where you're going to give lip service to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on the one hand, and on the other hand, you're going to worship Baal? And the parallel of that to us as believers is that we also live, just as they did, in a culture dominated by paganism, by pagan thought, by false views of the origin of life, the origin of the universe. We live in a world dominated by a scientific mythology that came from uh, Darwin, that everything is just a product of time plus chance, and that all life evolved from non-life and there's really no evidence of that. It's never been uh, demonstrated whatsoever, yet people buy into that. And so that becomes a foundation for an entire way of looking at the details of life, looking at all of the issues in life from uh, morality to politics, from finances to uh, education. All of these areas, every area of human endeavor is directly impacted and shaped by that foundation of Darwinism. And that stands 180 degrees against the view of the Bible that God, that there is a God, He is a personal, infinite God, and that all things come from His mind spoken into existence, as we read 
in the psalm uh, spoken into existence by his word. And therefore, because he created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, he is the one who has absolute authority. Things are the way they are because he created that, them that way. He defined them, and they are what they are because he said that's what they are. And he and he alone is the one who defines reality. So the second question that we really have embedded within First uh, Kings chapter 18 is a question that is not expressed. It's it's implied, and that is directed to the believer, and that is a question related to the extent of your obedience and my obedience to God, our response to His sovereignty. Now, in the last few weeks, we've looked at different passages, different issues related to government as an authority that is established by God, that it is a divine institution that was established by God in Genesis chapter 9, and that uh, it is uh, reestablished in the New Testament that government comes from God, that there is no authority, we saw last time in Romans 13, no authority except those that have been established by God. And the context shows that it's talking about a government. Now, in some of your translations, as I pointed out last time, there's a statement in verse 1 that there's no governing uh, uh, authority or an authority of government, or no government that exists uh, apart from God. But the text uses a different word there. It uses that word just authority there, which brings up several questions. And I, before we get into our chapter first of uh, chapter 18, I wanted to address briefly three questions that came up, uh, three things, rather, that came up as a result of questions that were asked immediately after class last week, although I was trying very hard to avoid having to address this. The questions are there. And a couple of questions that were sent to me uh, via email, which I'm always glad to get questions, anything for clarification, but sometimes the answers are not always as easy to come by as the questions. And the first question I was asked had to do with the uh, obvious question. It's probably on everybody's mind, and that is in light of Romans 13, how are we then to understand or interpret what took place during the American War for Independence? And I don't know of one person, myself included, that has wrestled with that question down through the years. And I've gone, you know, teetered on the edge, gone back and forth at different times. Um, I've seen seminary professors that I've had that were very knowledgeable in history and American history. Uh, John Hanna, who was, uh, I did my doctoral work under at Dallas, specialized in American church history. And I've seen John go back and forth a few times over the last 30 years because it's difficult to really factor in all of the all, all the different circumstances that were going on at that particular uh, at that particular time in history and i'm familiar with most of the arguments on both sides of that of that question and the role of the believer in relation to civil government is as important an issue for us today as it was for them in the in the 18th century and even today we see that there is a a tremendous number of controversy and debate going on within conservative evangelicalism. There's, on the one hand, you have uh, Dr. John MacArthur, who's the pastor of Grace Community uh, Church out in uh, Southern California, and he has taken a very strong position that in light of Romans chapter 13, the American War for Independence was not... Um, 
was was not in in line was in disobedience to the principles in Romans chapter 13 and some of you are also aware of a <coughs> history uh, teacher who has made a specialty of his life and ministry over the last few years named David Barton who's a Texas high school teacher uh, at the beginning and he his focus of his ministry was teaching about the impact and influence of Christianity in American history and David Barton has done a fantastic amount of work in this area over the last 10 or 20 years bringing to light many original sources and one of the things I've come to appreciate about his ministry in the last 20 years is how he has uh, really gone into the original uh, diaries and letters and writings of the founding uh, fathers of this nation to see, let them speak for the the way they thought and their understanding of uh, the role of the Bible in the founding of this of this nation. So that's that that whole area of the American War for Independence is a is a fascinating and complex issue. Uh, one question that was asked was, <clears throat> well, in light of what you taught last week, what about the Boston Tea Party? Was that legitimate or not? And I don't think it was. It was uh, an act of destruction of private property. The tea that was on those ships belonged to the British East India Tea Company, did not belong to the king or the government. And even though the government was involved in uh, imposing a tax that should not have been there, it was uh, an early bailout type of thing to protect the uh, uh, bank balance of the uh, British East India Tea Company, giving them a, a monopoly so that they could sell tea directly to the uh, to the um, uh, colonists in, in America and undercut all of the others who were uh, all the merchants in, in America. And so it was that act of act of uh, favoritism, but it was in essence a destruction of private property. And so that wasn't uh, morally or ethically legitimate uh, because it did not show the proper respect for ownership of uh, private property. And that's what one of the things that makes a study of the American War for Independence difficult is because you see that there is right and wrong done on both sides. Sometimes I liken it to trying, as a pastor, trying to figure out a complex uh, marriage breakup situation where the husband and wife come in, they have a whole litany of descriptions of different events, and you wouldn't think they were talking about the same uh, same events. And you have to work through a lot of uh, complex issues to figure out just exactly uh, what it, what is going on. And um, I'm not going to speak to with any kind of definiteness on that question of the war for independence because there's a lot of difficult issues that are involved with that. One of them is that I've really begun to understand more in just the, the, my re- recent round of study is that so much of the thought that informed the founding uh, the, the colonists, not to some degree the founding fathers, but also the colonists came out of a, a Calvinistic Reformed theology. Most specifically, the Scottish Presbyterian Church. And that thinking was formed and shaped in, in the Scottish Presbyterian Church in the conflicts that occurred in the early uh, 1600s between the... Uh, the, the reformed leaders of the church, the elders and the pastors in the Scottish Presbyterian Church, and the claim of the Scottish monarchy to uh, divine right power. That bled over into England when James the Sixth of Scotland became James the First 
of England, and he's the James of the King James Bible. And the, ba- the battles that occurred between the, the Puritan-dominated parliament in England in the early 1600s and this divine right claim by the Stuart monarchy, James I and Charles I. And then you have the, all the issues that come in with, with Cromwell and that revolution, the Puritan Revolution, and then later the Glorious Revolution. All these things are pretty complex. One of the most influential documents that Barton has, has uh, referenced in many of his writings is written by uh, Scottish theologian and pastor by the name of Samuel Rutherford who wrote a treatise called Lex Rex, The Law is King. Uh, I printed out an electronic copy. It runs to about 350 pages, and it is in a classic uh, scholastic type of argument in 17th century English, so it's difficult to work your way through and I'm still working my way through it. But one of the things that you see that also relates a little bit to our passage in 1 Kings 18, one of the things you see that runs throughout his argument and the argument of others is that because within uh, the Reformed Church, that would be Presbyterian, Congregational Church, those who are in the stream of theological thought that uh, that came from Calvin and John Knox, that they believed that the New Testament pastor had the same role toward the government as the Old Testament prophet. And see, when we're in this passage in 1 Kings 17, it is the prophet of God who is the authority, the spokesman for God, who is really over the king. He is the one who can tell the king this is right and this is wrong. The kings were anointed by the prophet, which was a picture of the fact that the secular temporal authority of the king was under the authority of God. But see, the New Testament pastor is not does not have that same role as the Old Testament prophet. But when you're confusing the distinction between Israel and the church and you're applying rules for the church age believer that that are were designed for the believer under the Old Testament economy and under the Mosaic law, then you're going to end up with some 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 problems. And the same thing happens when I when you read through many of the of the uh, sermons, many of the writings of the of the uh, those who were uh, influential during the uh, 18th century, the 1700s, leading up to the American War for Independence, is that they're identifying George III as the Antichrist, and they are speaking of the the events at that time as if they're. Uh, as if America is the new Israel and we're the city the Puritans thought of, uh, of, of the Western Hemisphere as they were going to establish a city, city with, set on a hill. And all of this thinking seriously affects the uh, colonies. All the colonies were deeply impacted by Reformed thought. Reform, you had Reformed Anglican thought. You had uh, Reformed Puritans up in Massachusetts, uh, Reformed uh, Congregationalists in Connecticut, and in other places, then you had this huge migration of Scotch-Irish Presbyterians that occurred in the 1740s and 1750s, and they all come with this this mentality. And the influence of Presbyterian thought was so profound in the in the War for Independence that the British would disparagingly refer to the American War for Independence as the Presbyterian War, because 80 percent, 80 to 90 percent of all Presbyterian elders and pastors fought in the Continental Army. 
but they're influenced by a way of interpreting and understanding Scripture that is shaped by their theology. And their theology is based on a covenant theology, amillennialism, all these other factors. I mean, it's just, you're confused already. I mean, it is, it is a, a web of ideas that you have to pierce through to get to, uh, what's really going on here. So, it's it's a great thing to think through, but you, one needs to read a lot. Recently, Barton uh, sent out an email listing several documents that uh, he used to support his case. Lex Rex was one of them, two or three others. Thankfully, we live in a wonderful age with the internet, where many of these documents that are that are inaccessible because they're buried away in some library at Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard or Yale are now uh, digitized and they're on the internet, and you can find them and read them and look at them. And that just makes uh, sorting some of these things out a little more a little more complicated. But uh, so I'm not going to take a definite stand on <clears throat> on that particular issue because uh, there's just too much to have to work through and read through before you come to those uh, definite conclusions. We do know that that there were many uh, godly men who believed they were doing the right thing, who seriously spent many hours and days in prayer before they made. Uh, those decisions thought things through very, very, uh, very deeply, very profoundly, and in their minds were convinced that they were not violating uh, Romans 13 in light of uh, uh, in their acts in uh, bringing the uh, uh, bringing to bear the law on the king of England. So I don't know. We'll uh, we'll come back to that and visit it many more times over the next few years. I'm sure. As we come to 1 Kings 18, we see these three people that are central to the story, to the events of 1 Kings 18. Elijah is the prophet of God. He is the one who announced to Ahab in chapter 17, verse 1, that it would not rain again until it was at his command. He is the representative of God representing the Mosaic law, wherein, remember, God stated that if Israel was apostate, if they disobeyed him, if they were involved in idolatry, then God would bring various stages of discipline upon the nation. And within that is described in Leviticus chapter 26 that the ground would be hard, the sun would, the sky would be like brass, and that, uh, that God would bring a famine, would bring a drought. And so what Elijah is announcing is not just some arbitrary punishment that he's thought up on his own, but he is stating that this is what God said he would do in the covenant he made with us, and so because you are apostate, you have succumbed to the uh, Baal worship, the worship of the Asherah, the fertility religions that have been brought in here by uh, Jezebel and Ahab, God is now going to bring this horrendous discipline upon the nation. So for three and a half years, it has not rained. During that time, God has continued to train Elijah, as we've seen, in terms of his own relationship to God, his uh, understanding of divine authority, and Elijah is a man who trusts God extensively, and he is a great believer and a great prophet because he is completely sold out to obeying God no matter what the external circumstances might be. 
He is the kind of believer that we find in short supply today. We find too many are not like Elijah. They are more like Obadiah. Obadiah as well is a believer. Obadiah is a believer of some courage and some application. He's not apostate, but he is a weak believer and he is limited in his, in his application. We've studied him that he had courage to a great degree in that when Ahab and Jezebel are killing the prophets of God in the northern kingdom and they are sending out, as it were, their uh, death's head squads to uh, kill uh, any prophet of God, anyone who is a continued to be a steadfast believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that Obadiah, at the risk of his own life, has hidden a hundred prophets in two caves, 50 in each cave, and he has continued for this period of time to supply them with bread and water. Now, when you think about how much water a person needs on a daily basis and how much food a person needs on a daily basis, then this was quite a logistical challenge to supply a hundred prophets with food and water during a time of uh, during a time of drought, and so Obadiah is a man of a certain degree of courage and a certain degree of obedience to God. But we see that he is also uh, a man of limited courage, and he is spiritually weak. And then the third person that we see in this chapter is Ahab. And Ahab ultimately is an evil king. He is evil because he is disobedient to God. He is evil because he imports a false religious system and supports this false religious system within his uh, nation. And he is evil because rather than being a leader within the home, he is a passive male to his uh, aggressive wife, Jezebel. And so he is a uh, a wimp of a husband and a wimp of a leader. And as a result, uh, he is manipulated by uh, whoever is around him. Now, as we get into this 18th chapter, there's two basic sections that we look at in the chapter. The first section is we've looked at to a limited degree. The first 19 uh, verses is the prelude to the great event that occurs from verse verse 20 down through verse uh, 46. This is the challenge that Elijah makes to the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And this is, to me, one of the greatest episodes of all of Scripture because uh, of the tremendous way in which uh, uh, Elijah is, is able to trust God, the courage, the boldness that he shows in taking this stand out in front of everybody at the risk of his own death to call upon God to bring down fire upon the altar uh, in a challenge a, to the... Um, uh, to the priests of Baal. And we see a number of important lessons there. We probably won't get to that specifically until next time, but one of the key elements there is to show one way that believers can challenge and confront a paganism in a pagan world, in a pagan, in a pagan culture. But this morning what I want to look at is this comparison and contrast between Elijah and Obadiah, for in that we see the importance of 
our obedience to God, we see the question, how obedient are you? How dedicated are you? How, um, how strong is your commitment to follow the authority of God? How sold out are you in your relationship with God? And that makes the difference between whether you are going to be a great believer, whether you're going to be a strong believer, or whether you are just a mediocre Weak believer. What we need in this world today are believers who have the kind of courage and strength that Elijah has. So as we look at these two men, Elijah and Obadiah, uh, we see three areas initially where they are very similar. They're very similar. First of all, both men are believers. Both men are Old Testament believers. Now, in the Old Testament, you're saved the same way that you're saved in the New Testament. You're saved by faith alone in the promise of God. Now, in the Old Testament, the promise of God looked forward to or anticipated God's solution to the sin problem. And so the Old Testament individual was saved by trusting that God would provide a Savior. God would provide a deliverer, and it is through that deliverer and that deliverer alone that they would have uh, eternal life. In the church age, in the New Testament period, we look back to the fulfillment of that promise, which occurred on the cross of Golgotha when Jesus Christ died as a substitute for our sins. And in that act of dying for our sins, he fulfills all of the pictures and types and foreshadowing that occurred in the Old Testament, the uh, most concrete of which was the sacrifice of the Lamb. John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is an allusion to the uh, role of the Passover lamb who is sacrificed uh, and his blood is applied, picturing the fact that the death is applied to the individuals that were in the house so that when uh, the Lord passed over the house, the firstborn would not die. So it is a picture of a substitutionary death. Jesus Christ, as the Lamb of God, died on the cross for our sins. So Elijah and Obadiah are both believers. They have both understood that God is the one who has promised deliverance, salvation, and that by faith alone in God's promise of a future salvation, they're saved. We're told that Obadiah was one who feared, uh, one who feared the Lord, and that in this passage it talks of his obedience uh, to the Lord. And so because he is one who feared the Lord, verse 12, he says, I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. So from the time he was a young man, he was a, a believer. And so he has grown to some degree. He is a adolescent believer, uh, perhaps, in his spiritual growth. So both men are believers. Both fear God. Fear God in the Old Testament, we know, we see over and again repeated Proverbs 1 is one of the foundational passages that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of knowledge. And it is foundational if we don't fear the Lord, which doesn't mean to be afraid in the sense of terror, but in but we are impressed with his reality, his authority, so that we know that we must obey him. It is a term that's directly related to the believer's response to the authority of God. I often think back to when I was a child. Some of you have similar uh, similar memories when you did something uh, rather egregious and your mother said, well, I'm not going to punish you, but just wait until your father comes home. 
And so that was the fear of your father. And you knew that you were in serious, uh, serious trouble. And that was the last thing you ever wanted to hear. And so as, a, as an individual, when we fear the Lord, we respect his authority, his commands, and we know that we should live in obedience to him because he is the God who created everything and the God who redeemed us. So both men are believers. Both men fear God. And third, both men have courage of their convictions, although Elijah's is to a greater degree than Obadiah's. Uh, They both have the courage, the spiritual courage that comes from having grown in their relationship to God and their understanding of the word of God that is in their soul, so that Obadiah takes a tremendous uh, act of faith in God, an act of obedience. You can't quite distinguish the two because he believes God is and because he is the rewarder of good and evil. He knows that he must protect the prophets. And so he hides these prophets at the risk of his own life. But he is timid and scared in the process. And many of us can relate to that because in the process of growing and maturing as a believer, though we often take steps of faith and trust in God, we know the seriousness of the circumstance, the, the, the situation, and we do it with, with fear and trembling because, uh, we haven't quite strengthened our faith enough yet in that in our in our spiritual growth and that's the way we see Obadiah when he sees Elijah on the road and uh that Elijah is coming to to see Ahab we learn that uh that he is quite fearful and he confronts, uh, in verse 7, we read now as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him. He recognized him, fell on his face, and said, Is that you, my lord, Elijah? Elijah said, It's I. Go tell your master, I'm here. Oh, that's not what Obadiah wanted to do. Verse 9, he said, How have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? Now, you see, when God directed Elijah to confront Ahab, Elijah goes to the most powerful man in the land who could have had him killed right there on the spot. But Elijah knows that his life is in God's hands. It's not up to Ahab when he lives or dies. It's up to God. And so Elijah has the courage of his convictions of God's control over his life that he can walk into the presence of Ahab with all of his guards, bodyguards around him and announce that there will there will not there will be a famine until Elijah says that it will it will rain. But Obadiah is saying, You want me to go in front of me? He's going to kill me. See, there is a limitation to his courage and a limitation uh, to his faith. So Elijah obeys God without hesitation. God said it and he does it. There used to be a little uh, bumper sticker magnet, saying on a magnet, said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's got something out of order. A lot of people like that. It sounds good, gives us a little confidence. God said it, I believe it, that ends it. And it, and the, the thrust of that is that because God said it, I'm 100% committed to it. But they got the last two lines reversed. It should be God said it, that settles it. I believe it. 
Because God said it, that settles it. It is now our response to be 100% committed to obedience without hesitation. So Elijah obeys without hesitation, but Obadiah questions Elijah. Do you think this is really a good idea? Let's have a little discussion over this. So we see that Elijah has a very strong faith. And because he believes that God exists and God is a rewarder of those who follow him, uh, he has unquestioned obedience, whereas Obadiah is weak in faith. He's, he's a young, and, and spiritually he's young. He doesn't have the strength. He doesn't have the uh, courage yet of an Elijah. He has grown some. I don't want to be... Um, uh, beating up on Obadiah. He's like a lot of believers, though, be, they have a limitation to the, their commitment to God, their willingness to follow the Lord, and they will only go so far. And there are too many believers today that are committed to mediocrity. They are committed to only a uh, halfway Christianity. They're not sold out 100% as Elijah was. They would never expose themselves as Elijah did on Mount Carmel, but they are glad to go to church once a week, listen to Bible class every now and then, be associated, involved with believers. But when it comes to really stepping out, taking a stand where things in their life may be put at risk, that may be going a bit too far. So there are too many Obadiah believers. That was the problem in the northern kingdom. There were too many Obadiah believers. They were uh, secret service believers. Nobody really knew how many were there until God announces to uh, Elijah later on that there were 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. But when Elijah comes forward, he thinks he's just about the only one left. He's the only one who has the courage of his convictions to take a stand. So we see next that Elijah, because of the doctrine that was in his soul, because he was committed to it, because the reality of God's command and God's presence was more uh, real, more present to him than experience than any threats from any human being, he had tremendous spiritual courage and bravery. He was bold so that he could take a stand, but he is not bold in an arrogant way. He is bold with humility toward God. He is bold in his approach to God, and without that uh, braggadocia or human sense of boldness, which is a uh, arrogant type of bravery. In contrast, uh, Obadiah was not bold. He was timid. He was willing to do what he did in the shadows, in the background, and what he did was right and honorable, but he was not one to, to step out and uh, take a stand. And we see this in verses 10 and 11, he talks about the fact that Ahab's been looking everywhere uh, for Elijah. And in verse 11, he says, now you say, go tell your masters Elijah is here. And Obadiah says, it's going to come to pass as soon as I'm gone for you, from you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I don't know. You're going to disappear again, and I'm going to be left holding the bag. 
so when I go and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. And so he is uh, limited in his bravery and he is not uh, not bold. He is not one to take a stand on his own. Uh, next, we see that uh, one of the aspects of the mature believer in Elijah is that he is not concerned about what other people might think of him. He's not concerned about those negative consequences that come from how others might respond or react to him. He's not concerned of the fact that uh, Ahab may announce to his or order his uh, bodyguard to kill him. He knows that his life is in the hands and the protection of the Lord. No matter what happens, whether he ends up in in uh, prison or in in uh, uh, or in death, it is in the Lord's hands. So he is not worried about others. He doesn't have a focus on on the circumstances or details of life, whereas Obadiah does. The, the circumstances and details of life are still important to him and more important to him than the reality of God's uh, presence. And then next we see that uh, Elijah, as a strong believer, is willing to stake everything on his obedience to God. He understands that God is real and what God says in his word is real, and so he is willing to stake it all on the reality of God, even though he cannot see God, he cannot feel God, touch God, he knows it is true. And so he's willing to take that stand alone on Mount Carmel against the 450 priests of Baal and the 400 priests of the Asherah and against Ahab, and he is going to call upon God for a miracle, and he is completely confident that God will perform that miracle. So he stakes everything on God, whereas Obadiah, when he hears of Elijah's commission to uh, go to Ahab, uh, goes on the defensive. He talks about what he's already done, why should I do more, and don't do something that could threaten my life. Verse 14, now you say, go tell your master Elijah's here. He'll kill me. His life is more important to him, and his comforts are more important to him than uh, obedience to God. And so Elijah commands him again, verse 15, to go and present himself to uh, Ahab and say he, will pre- he, Elijah, will come and present himself to him that day. And so finally Obadiah does follow him. He does. His doubts have been satisfied by Elijah, and so he goes to meet Ahab and announces that that Elijah is on the way. So when we come to look at these two men, we have to ask ourselves, what kind of believer are you? Are you an Obadiah believer or are you an Elijah believer? Many years ago I saw uh, a signpost or bumper sticker, this morning is bumper sticker theology, uh, that said something along the... the, um, uh, along the lines that um, if God exists, if, if God doesn't exist, nothing matters. If God exists, nothing else matters. And that has summed up in a nutshell the reality of Scripture, that if there is a God and if the God of the Bible exists, then truly nothing else that we experience in life 
matters. Nothing else can stack up against the knowledge of God, our relationship with God, and living our life on the basis of that truth, because that is reality. Anything else is living in a fantasy world. Anything else is living in a world of our own creation and is doomed to failure. So if God uh, doesn't exist, then nothing really matters. There's no basis for morality. There's no basis for ethics. There's no future hope. Uh, there's nothing that, uh, in life that really matters. Everything is just pure chance and chaos, and we're nothing more than an accident uh, of protoplasm. And so let's just go do whatever makes us happy right now. But if God exists, then nothing else matters. And that's the challenge we see here. Elijah has understood that. And as we grow as believers, we come to understand that more and more and more. But it only comes because we make that initial decision at some point in our life that nothing matters more than knowing God. Nothing matters more than knowing his word. Nothing matters more than learning to think about reality the way God says we should think about reality, and therefore nothing that I do in life is more important than studying his word and and absorbing it into my thinking, my life, so that I'm just saturated with his word and so that I can be the kind of believer that Elijah is so that I can have courage, I can have that kind of boldness, and I can be one of those solid believers that has a positive impact by association with those around me and others around me. Anything less is not contributing to the solution, but contributes to the problem. And that spiritual life begins because we come to understand the fullness of God's grace and his love as expressed at the cross when he sent his son to die on the cross and to pay the penalty for our sin. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that we can take this time to be challenged by your word to recognize that uh, it takes time to grow spiritually. We start off in our new birth uh, as immature believers with little or no knowledge of you or your word, and only as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ by studying your word under the ministry of the Holy Spirit can we begin to develop that courage, that uh, faith that is essential to spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, stability, and that we can have in our own thinking the same kind of courage, the same kind of stability that Elijah had. That, in fact, since we are New Testament church-age believers with the Holy Spirit indwelling us and filling us, we can far surpass him in terms of spiritual strength and spiritual maturity. Father, we pray that we might be willing to take up that challenge, that we might not be the kind of uh, settle for for a mediocre type of uh, spiritual life, uh, only reaching a small measure of spiritual growth, ending up like an Obadiah believer, but we would rather be an Elijah type of believer. Now, Father, we pray for those who may be here this morning who have never trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, who have no certainty of a future eternal life, that have no uh, confidence in their salvation, that they can know that right now they can have the confidence and certainty by simply trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Jesus said, uh, whoever comes to him, he will in no way cast out, and that those who trust in him, he holds in his hand, 
and nothing can take them out of his hand. Nothing can remove them from his grip. That when we trust in Christ as Savior, we have eternal life. He paid the penalty for our sins, and that is applied to us, and we have an eternal relationship with him and with God that is not dependent on who we are or what we've done, but exclusively on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things. Uh, This morning we pray in Christ's name. Amen.